is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with Karen Batesel, that's Captain Karen Batesel, or Battle Axe to those who knew her in the service. She is a former aviator, 30 years flying for the Navy. And now, well, I don't wanna say leadership coach because as you can see, I'll get in trouble for that, but she is a leadership expert as well as a multi-talented lady. She's gonna teach us a lot of things today about communication, specific language, what aviation culture brings to the corporate leadership table, the difference between procedure, technique, and something called leadership dirty work, all of which we can take into our lives, whether or not we're students, corporate, or military ourselves. And that's what we've got for you today here on The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with my producer, Jason. Hello, people. Every single one of those just sounds so ridiculous, but I know you're doing that on purpose. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. We may not have all the answers, but we certainly have all the questions. All right, let's talk to Battle Axe. Tell us what you do in one sentence. I sharpen leaders for work, and if I do it well, for life, through military and aviation principles, which I've gathered over a lifetime. And I would say my principal product is to build equity in in other fellow human beings along the way. And I try and have a bunch of fun doing it at the same time. All right. So how did you learn these concepts? Because as you know, leadership coaches abound, many of them self-appointed and self-taught. Well, let me first say I am not a leadership coach. I don't even know what that means. I am a practitioner. This is uh, 30 years of military experience and then another well, about eight years now in the corporate world. And I learned it through a lifetime of service to this country. And what has been so cool about it is so much of what I learned has been so practical and so transferable to other people that I now spend my days doing just that, sharing what a veteran has learned over a lifetime with other folks. And it really seems to resonate. What did you do in the military? What was your service I joined the Navy as a young country kid and ended up as a naval aviator, one of the earlier uh, women in the Navy to fly. And I spent about 20 years in the cockpit flying several different platforms. I was one of the kind of just an odd Forrest Gump sort of experience of being a woman at a time when the military wasn't quite sure what to do with us in terms of career paths as aviators. I flew helicopters and propeller aircraft and ultimately big jets in the Navy. And then I spent the last 10 years in leadership development and ended up in emergency preparedness as well in 2000, right before 9-11. So I spent the last uh, nine years in emergency preparedness work, both at the state and regional level and then in the Pentagon. So that's where I finished up. How many female aviators are there? I mean, especially you've amassed over 2,000 flight hours on seven ships, six different aircraft types, helicopters and jets. You said Forrest Gump style. Does that mean you quote unquote got lucky with that or what? Well, let me start by saying it's hard to believe this, but the first women aviators got into military cockpits in this country in 1974. So we're almost 40 years into this. It's hard to believe because the numbers were so small. I was, I think, the seventh woman to get my wings in helicopters. 
And now there are many more female aviators than there were back in the day because the laws have changed where there was a broader opportunity for a full-fledged career. I'm not kidding when I said when I got my wings, the Navy and the Air Force were not exactly sure what to do with us because they had to provide us a career path, but the traditional career paths due to combat exclusion were hard to apply for a woman. Anybody who spent a career in the military has done something different almost every two to three years. Even if you have a particular occupational specialty, you either move to a new duty station, you move up in responsibility, or you move in some sort of collateral field in your occupational specialty. So it's one of the reasons why when veterans get out, they have done so many cool things. There's kind of a joke inside the military that you move just about the time you get competent in your field to someplace where you're starting all over again, which again, I think is a great learning laboratory for anybody who goes on to help other leaders and other followers become good at what they do. So back to your first question, about leadership coaches, I don't even know what that means. I'm not a coach, I'm a practitioner. And I just share what I learned, the mistakes I made along the way, uh, some things that really translate in the military that I don't see offered in civilian leadership or followership training. But every time I talk about it in the civilian world, people go, oh yeah, I wish my boss heard that, or I wish my company did that, or boy, I could have really used this three years ago when I goofed this up. So that's kind of where the value of all this diverse experience comes along. And and I call myself Forrest Gump because I just found myself in so many cool places. Now, it's true that, you know, fortune favors the well-prepared. And I worked my rear end off, but I was also the beneficiary of great leaders born into a great country at a great time, particularly as a woman, for the opportunities that just didn't exist before. Take me through and take us through, bridge the gap from aviator to leader, or is it more just military in general to leadership? Because the word leadership is thrown around a lot in very casual ways, but you hear it especially associated with the military, and it seems like everyone should know that military breeds leaders, but I wanna know specifically what you do and what you have done that now qualifies you for this. I just don't wanna have to take anything at face value. First, let me say, the opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Navy. Right. Nor do I speak for every one of the over 22 million vets in this country. We all have some things that are in common, but every one of us has a unique experience as well. But to your specific question, I think one of the things that the military does so well is first, no matter what service you're in, no matter what era, whether it's World War II or Korea or Vietnam or the strategic pause or the first Gulf War or the second Gulf War or Afghanistan, whatever, you're not special in the military. Your specialness is being part of the team. And you are forced to negotiate with yourself every day to give a little more. And so with that backdrop, you are forced to start with fundamentals. We destigmatize followership for one thing. So there's a lot of civilian worlds, we get kind of liquored up on being a leader and we kind of ignore or forget that all leaders were followers at one time. And in order to be a great leader, you do have to learn how to follow. And that's not a stigma in the military. You're expected to follow first. And it's a skill set. If it were a Venn diagram, it would overlap leadership some, but not all. And we teach those skills. We teach that. 
and we reward it for being good followers. Now, that doesn't mean that you're a kiss butt or that you're a mindless drudge, despite what you might see in Hollywood. It means you know how to play your role as part of a team. And when your leader falls in a hole somewhere, you know what's expected of you. And I think we do that particularly well. And to think that if you don't know how to follow or being a follower somehow diminishes your status or something, it's really a self-limiting belief. So we start there. And then we have a really great process. It's competency-based. You're unqualified at first. And then you work your way up, no matter what your specialty, you work yourself up through predictable progression. Your training is ongoing and lifelong. You're always in some sort of dynamic state, learning first how to basically comply with training requirements. And then you seek to be an advanced performer. And then you get to the point where you're a high performer. You're one of these hold my beer guys and watch me do this because I'm really good at what I do. And then guess what? You get transferred, you get a new job and you start all over again. And you're always in the form of requalifying yourself or reinventing yourself or in a dynamic state of improving yourself. And it is such a great way to live. You're never standing still. I did this for 30 years and I think that it's made me an evangelist for this because when I see people living inspired lives, whether they're civilians or military or no matter what stripe they come from, they're committed to that. The military was a great structure for making sure that happened for everybody. So why did you end up being one of the aviators that went into leadership practice, not coaching, instead of aviation? I mean, dot, 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 private pilot, pretty cush gig, retirement. Why did you diverge from that? Well, that's a very fair question. My last fleet squadron was flying Navy DC-9s, which or C-9s, which is a civilian DC-9. So it's the Big Ten. It's a 100-seat heavy jet. If you've flown in a DC-9 commercially, the Navy at that time had a fleet of those. And I hauled sailors around for three years. And I didn't find it very exciting. And I also, my uh, husband is a commercial airline pilot. He's an international captain. And I see what he does every day for a living. And I am kind of glad I went into this business <laughs> because, you know, post 9-11 changed the airline industry for one thing. And these guys work pretty hard. And I think what drew me to this rather than commercial aviation, which as a female military trained pilot, I'm, I'm sure I would have been hireable. But I just wanted to share more and work closely with people. A commercial airline pilot has an extraordinary amount of stress and an extraordinary amount of responsibility, but they don't have a lot of contact with people, especially post 9-11. They shut the door and they drive. And I didn't think I wanted to do that. I wanted to do this. And it actually turned out I was pretty good at it. So that was another reason why it started to be really fun. I was just curious because it seems like such a natural transition. It's almost like you just get paid more and put on a slightly different uniform and that's it. <laughs> so Well, it is. And the money's better <laughs> so, if you stick around long enough. Right. The hotels are nicer, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> True. Before the show, we talked a little bit about military aviation culture, attention, respect. What types of things have you imported from military aviation culture to the leadership and corporate practice? Okay. The first thing I always try and emphasize is inside the cockpit is the last place in the world that you want unpredictability. 
So this is a place where the person you're working with, you and he or she, have to have such a sense of teamwork that no matter what happens, you know what they're going to do and they know what you're going to do. And that is not a bad thing to import into other places. The way you do that, of course, is you over-communicate and you train together and you over-communicate some more and then you train together some more and then you over-communicate again. And there's a process or sort of a convention that I didn't know before I became an aviator, which is the difference between a procedure and a technique. And if I can get into that just real quickly, in all of military, aviation as well, but particularly in aviation, there are things that are called procedures, regulations, and they're not optional. And they are not something that you can change on a whim. They're consensually arrived at and they are written down and they're not something that you can decide on any particular day. I'm going to apply the procedure today, but maybe not tomorrow. It's a must do. For example, a landing procedure in an airplane has some very specific criteria. You enter the downwind at 1,000 feet AGL at a certain airspeed, plus or minus so many knots, and you make a radio call. And at the 135 degree mark, you put the gear down and they have to be locked and indicated by the 90 degrees and you roll out on short final. You must have clearance from a tower. Those are standardized procedures. Your shipmate up there in the cockpit always knows that that's what's supposed to happen. That's what you're going to do. And if something should not happen, for example, if you don't have clearance on the tower on short final, you're not going to mess around. You're not going to talk about it. You're not going to collaborate. You have to go around. That's a procedure. Now, the way you do all those things is a technique. That's your personal way of complying with the procedure so long as you meet the standard. So this is where the variance of opinion and innovation and the idea that I can do it a little bit better and a little bit smoother than somebody else comes in. And the problem is when people confuse the difference between a procedure and a technique, it is at the base of so many arguments. And this applies outside the cockpit, in the workplace, in personal relationships. I see it all the time. And I always go back to that convention and say, are we arguing about a procedure or are we arguing about a technique? If it's a technique, perhaps it's just the narcissism of small differences. This is the way you do it and this is the way I do it. But if it's a procedure, then we have to step back a step or two and say, what is our intent here? What was our big picture goal? Well, in aviation, it's to you know have as many landings as you do takeoffs and walk away from all of them. You don't want to end up in a smoking hole and get famous and get a chow hall <laughs> named after you. You want to make sure that safety is paramount. Well, sometimes if you fly with somebody who's got wild ass ideas, their techniques are crazy and they're not complying with procedures. So you have to step back and say, hey, your technique is all screwed up. It's not complying. It's not safe. In the civilian world, for example, let me just give you a silly example in your house. Do you have a dishwasher in your house? Yes. Okay. Do you ever load the dishwasher? I know Jen's your girlfriend because I'm a big fan. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> okay. So say you're married and you have a spouse that shares the dishwasher loading responsibilities with you. Do you ever agree on how to do it? We don't disagree. Okay. Well, then you might be smart because you've stepped back and say, okay, the intent is to get the dishes loaded and run it and have clean dishes so we don't have to do it by hand. Many people argue about it. 
there's probably a lot of ways to do it. It's just that if one person has any particular preference in that area, it's not going to be me. They win. Okay. Well, there are many people, for example, the married listeners out there may identify with this, who argue they will fight to the death over whether the dishes should all be washed and kind of rinsed and cleaned or just knock the big food chunks off of it and load it. I would argue that that is a argument about technique, not procedure. That's kind of a comical, silly example. But in the workplace, some of this stuff can take on some pretty high stakes. And the smart person steps back before they get into the middle of this awful food fight and says, okay, what are the procedures first? What is our guidance? What's written down that tells us what to do? And are our varying techniques meeting that criteria? Now, what happens sometimes, I do strategic consulting work and I go back and say, okay, show me your procedures. How is it that you expect your employees to handle this particular problem? We go, nobody can find the procedure. It hasn't been seen in 15 years. We know it's written somewhere, but they can't find it. And I say, well, that's your first problem. If you can't write it down, if you can't express it in writing, then it either isn't that important or you are seriously off the rails here. So let's go back to fundamentals. In the military, almost every organization has some sort of inspection every year or two or three, but certainly no more than that, where somebody comes in and says, show me your paper. Show me that you're keeping these things up. Show me that your employees, your workers, the people you're expecting to deliver your product know what you want out of them. I really believe this is true that I go into companies and I ask questions, fundamental, basic questions about procedure and people kind of get the deer in the headlights look. And then somebody usually from HR says, oh yeah, they're back in the office in those publication bookcase and you go out and you knock the cobwebs off of them and nobody's read them or looked at them. They're living on oral history and passed down technique and they can't understand why they're not delivering the product they want. Perfect. That's something that really translates. When we get back, I want to talk about precision language habits and why they're necessary and something called leadership dirty work right here on The Art of Charm. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash charm. Just go to Indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. 
Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. And we're back with Karen Batesel. Do people still call you Captain Batesel or have you kind of left that in the past? <laughs> I've kind of left that behind. My last few years in the Navy, I had earned the nickname Battle Axe, which has become sort of a brand. Okay. And so that was mostly what I was called. And that's part of the aviation culture. If you didn't have a nickname or some sort of moniker, you were probably not one of the cool kids. So I never took that personally. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say they called you that to your face or... Was this before or after Top Gun, Maverick, and Goose? Was that a reflection of military culture, or did that become a part of military culture because of that stuff? Well, let me make a quick distinction here for all the jet pilots out there in podcast land. Jet pilots have tactical call signs for security reasons around the aircraft carrier. Battle Axe was my nickname. Everybody in the squadron usually had a nickname. In addition, jet pilots had tactical call signs. So Goose and Maverick had tactical call signs. So the air boss would always know who was in the cockpit without divulging their name over the air. I was a helicopter pilot when I was shipboard based. And we just had nicknames along the lines. If you were in a fraternity, you probably heard most of them. You know, there was always a mad dog and a bonsai and a cheese and all those kind of things that you can figure out where those names came from. And mine was Battle Axe. Oh, man, you train for years and you end up with cheese as your nickname. <laughs> that sucks. Well, it, it depends on your behavior on Liberty sometimes. It has nothing to do with your skill set. I wonder what you have to do to earn the nickname Cheese. Actually, I don't know. I don't know if we can talk about that. But tell <laughs> us about precision language habits, something we mentioned earlier. Precision language habits and why they're necessary. What is that? What does that mean? What that means is the cockpit is a place where the words mean what they mean what they mean. There's no context that can change their meaning. And you don't have to do a whole lot of research into aviation history to realize that many perfectly good airplanes were crashed because pilots didn't do a very good job of talking to one another. One most famous one is the Avianca jet that crashed a couple decades ago in Long Island. 
because even though the crew was from uh, Colombia, uh, they were perfectly fluent English speakers, but they used the wrong word to tell the controllers in New York that they were running out of gas. Oh, no. That's an example that you don't say, I need priority handling for fuel. That means nothing. Everybody wants priority handling when they're going into LaGuardia airspace. What he should have said is, I'm declaring an emergency for fuel state. And he didn't. And so he also did not know how to tell his captain, this was a co-pilot on the radio, he didn't know how to tell his captain that he was running out of gas, even though they could both see it. Perfectly good, fluent English speakers, they used the wrong words. And so my point when I hear people talk about body language and only this much percent of the message of a word is this, you know, it's the Moravian stuff from 1967, that 55-38-7 rule, it makes me crazy because there are many places where the words are 100% of the message and the cockpit is one of them. And it's important because when you're in a low context environment like the cockpit, where there's not a lot of subtlety, you have to use the right words, not only so people will understand you, but so they cannot misunderstand you, which are two different things. They sound like they're sides of the same coin. And aviation teaches us to be very precise in our language. And you're competing on a tactical frequency with other people, other military entities. So you have to be precise. The precision and the acuity of the words is critical. And I try and share that. I do some work trying to help people with their language and their presence. And one of the things that I really try and emphasize is pick your words carefully and say them like you mean them and then shut up. First of all, it's almost hard to believe a plane would crash and people would die because somebody couldn't say, hey, look at this double tap the fuel gauge. I just can't even imagine that. Hello, we're running out of gas. I mean, why didn't they just say that? That seems mind blowing to me. Well, the idea of cockpit resource management was instituted in aviation, both military aviation and commercial aviation, because of the hierarchy in the cockpit. It used to be, in the old days, that the captain of an aircraft was like the captain of a ship. He was God. His decisions were never questioned. The first officers or first officer and flight engineer, depending on the configuration, took orders, kept their mouths shut and did what the captain told them. There's uh, some anecdotal stories. I'll just share one of them. And this is civilian, where the captain was flying a leg into Mexico City, which has a very long parallel taxiway to the runway. And earlier in the flight, he had been kind of a jerk to the first officer. And he said, you keep your mouth shut over there. Do what I tell you. If I have any questions out of you, I'll ask you. And that's it. So the co-pilot let him line up on the taxiway and land on the taxiway, knowing full well that he was doing it. So we knew in aviation, and there are military examples of stories along that line of poor communication, even though lives are at stake, the individual's lives are at stake, didn't know how to talk to one another. So in the cockpit, there's always some sort of convention. It varies from industry and company to company and service to service and community to community within aviation. But there's some sort of language that's meant to say, we're in trouble here. And everybody is now trained that when they hear, for example, this code word, they know that something is going seriously awry. Rather than have this, for lack of a better word, pissing contest in the cockpit, 
where a martinet of a captain is bullying his first officer and flight engineer and endangering the safe and orderly conduct of the flight. So, for example, one term is, in the interest of form training, form being an acronym for flight operational readiness management. So in the interest of form training, Captain, I'm advising you that our fuel state is now at divert level, meaning we have to go to another airfield. We can't continue on. In the interest of form training, you are not in configuration to land this aircraft. That tells each person that I need to stop what I'm doing and execute the procedure because this is not working. Surprisingly enough, this industry had to kill people to figure out that people need to communicate that way with one another. This is like a safe word. It is. That's exactly right. Think of it that way. In another context, yes. Right. It's your safe word. We're in trouble here. In the interest of form training is kind of like, translates roughly to all this ego bullshit aside, you need to listen right now because this is critical. That's exactly what it means. Yell at me later, but we're gonna crash if you don't listen. Yeah, we'll argue about this all you want on the ground. But right now, I'm telling you, we're in trouble here. And we used to have a joke. One of the jokes was, gee, Captain, I wonder why those mountain goats are up in the clouds. Right. You know, that's kind of the code word for we're getting ready to run into the side of a mountain because I see goats. Oh, God. What is the leadership dirty work that you reference as well? I mean, it seems like we just talked about almost like dirty work going upwards with the form training safe word. What is leadership dirty work where leaders have less than desirable positions given that they've got to make a tough call or something like that? Well, one of the things that I spend a lot of time when I work with leaders is helping them understand or disabuse them of the notion, which is actually advocated by some leadership coaches, that one of your jobs is to keep everybody happy and engaged at all times. And I think that is just the biggest bunch of bovine sewage that's ever been shoveled. Because if you are doing your job as a leader and you are doing your mission of any consequence, it is not possible to keep everybody happy. And if you try and do that, Colin Powell once said famously, the quickest way to mediocrity is to please everybody. And leaders, I think this happens more to young leaders, perhaps, that are inexperienced and they're wielding their first authority. They try and keep everybody happy. But there are times when, as a leader, you have to do what I call the dirty work of leadership. If you weren't the leader, you wouldn't have to make the decision. For example, let's say you're managing a project in the civilian world and you're over hours and over budget and somebody's hours are going to get cut or you're going to have to lay somebody off. It's not possible for you to make everybody happy in that circumstance, but you still have to do your duty. And I think we need to tell people and shape people's expectations that being a leader from time to time is going to require that. And that's what a good leader does. Sometimes they have to make the hard call and people are going to be unhappy. Now you do it with sensitivity and you've communicated and there are ways to do it well, but there's really no honest way to avoid it. If you're not doing the dirty work, two things are happening. One of two things are happening. First, it's not getting done at all, which means you're failing your duty to your boss or somebody else is doing it for you. And that's not fair. If it's your job, you ought to be doing it. You can't delegate your dirty work to other people, not if you're a good leader. And the military prepares you to make the hard calls. And it prepares your followers to accept the fact that sometimes they don't see the full game board and their leader has to make a decision and they're going to have to take an order and move on. 
I think we do that better than probably any institution around. And I, I like to share those principles and kind of the framework of how to do that. You don't do it overnight. You set a very careful groundwork so your followers trust you. If you are a follower, you trust your leaders that they are going to do their duty. They're going to make the right cause. They're going to put the mission first and their people always, which might sound like a cheesy tagline, but it's really a great philosophy. What is some of that hard call making preparation? How does a military prepare people to make hard calls? What might that training look like? For one thing, you start out as a leader by always telling people who you are and what you're about and that you're dedicated to your mission, but you care about them. And it's not just that I care about you in a care bears sort of way, but I care about you, your development, your security and safety, especially if you're in an operational environment where those sorts of things are in question. And I care about what happens to you, but make no mistake, we're dedicated to our mission. And you over-communicate that and you put yourself last in the taking care of people scenario. I think there's a book out now called Leaders Eat Last. Well, let me tell you, we were doing that long before anybody wrote a book about it. Yeah. Yeah, we had Simon Sinek on. He always sends that preparation that this person will take care of me when they can, and they will say yes every time they can. They will take care of me as a leader. And when the time comes that they ask me to do the hard thing, I know that I can trust them. I'll give you an example from my life. When I was transferring between duty stations, that you always burn a couple of days or weeks of leave, depending on how far you have to travel, if you travel around the world to a new duty station. And I arrived on a Labor Day weekend. On the Friday before Labor Day weekend, the whole squadron would have Saturday, Sunday, and Monday off before coming back to work on Tuesday. Well, I was just going to burn leave days and show up at my new duty station on Tuesday. The guy who I was coming to work for, and this was before the days of the internet and cell phones, just to, you know, the earth had just cooled and the dinosaurs had just died. Right. <laughs> so the guy who I was coming to work for called the phone company, chased down my new landline number, called me at home. I'd never met this guy, never met him. And he said, hey, I'm your new officer in charge. I see you're reporting to the squadron on Tuesday. I said, yep. He goes, I'm going to check you in today so you don't burn four extra days of leave before you get here because we're all going to be off. If you were here, you'd have the days off without burning leave days. The equivalent would be burning vacation days in the civilian world. Sure. Do you know what kind of loyalty that bought me for that guy? Yeah, I can imagine. He just gave you an extra week of vacation practically. Yeah, yeah. I'd take a bullet for him. Now, he didn't have to do any of that. And I would have never walked in thinking he owed me that, or I never thought to do it at all. But he went the extra mile. So when he called me up and said, look, you're going to have to fly on Christmas Eve or you're going to have to fly on Easter or you're going to have to fly over the weekend when everybody else is off, I was happy to do it because I know whenever he could, he took care of me. That's the thing that a leader does is set up for when you have to make harder calls. So you sort of build almost what we would call social capital at the Art of Charm. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, interesting. It is social capital but it's connective tissue in a military organization. And there's no line item for it in the budget, but I will tell you it is a force multiplier when it comes to getting the job done because people will go so far beyond what's the minimum expected of them. You know, this idea of engagement, which is kind of a civilian world that's kicked around employee engagement. 
good military leaders knew long ago how to get engagement out of their people. And it wasn't just, you know, we had signed a contract that our heart and soul and body were owned for years and years. There was real devotion, a leadership devotion. And when the time comes to make the hard calls, if you've built that social capital to use the art of charm word, it's easier to do. All right, when we get back, I wanna hear a little bit more about leadership practice and of course, training and military mindset that goes into creating these great leaders right here on The Art of Charm. We're back with Captain Karen Batesel, just to keep your title up for another few minutes. I would love to hear the difference between the way the military looks at training and the way that the civilian world looks at training. Because running a training company myself, Art of Charm, we get tons of military, we get a lot of special forces, we get a lot of aviators, officers, and enlisted, of course, and there's a huge difference between how civilians that come through the Art of Charm look at the training and how the military does. And what I've noticed, as a little bit of a spoiler here, is the military guys, no matter how experienced, no matter how elite, especially with the special forces and intelligence guys, they look at the training and they go, I can't wait to do this, this is great, this is top of my list, it's such an honor to be able to do something like this, and when we talk to civilians, especially guys, they do things like, ah, I don't know how to tell my family about this, I wish I didn't need this, I don't wanna tell anybody I'm going there, and I just think there's a completely different outlook on what training means, what it means to undergo training, and the opportunity of training versus almost like civilians look at it almost like a punishment. Okay, well, let me start out with, here's the rule of thumb in the military to get promoted. Go to all the schools and go to all the wars. There you go. (laughs) Okay. So going to all the schools is a feather in a military member's cap. Schooling, lifelong schooling, career-long schooling is considered an honor. So that is probably one of the great things that we inculcate in people. And there's no shame in being untrained. We operate from the premise first that everybody is trainable. Nobody is untrainable. Now, there may be some exceptions where we actually recruit some folks that's for the convenience of the government, they're just not adaptable. But I would say that's more a matter of adaptation than training. Right, so when they say, oh, you know, we don't want this person because he has flat feet, which I don't think is a thing anymore, it's more like, look, he would require so much extra training slash the training would cause so many other difficulties that he's less desirable than somebody. But not necessarily that that person's unable to be trained, just that there's an extra staircase that people would have to take, let's put him somewhere else. Right, and there's always an element of time for time on task. You have to get to a certain level of competence to move on. So most of the time when somebody's unadaptable, it's usually, let's just say, they cannot adapt to a military environment. They thought they could, but they can't. You know, they're crying, they're emotional, they're psychological messes. That's not the person I'm talking about. I'm talking about the average kid or somebody like me, a working class kid from a widowed single family home raised by my dad and my sister and family friends. I joined the military as an escape. And the recruiter said, well, what do you want to do in the Navy? And I said, I want you to get me as far away from here as you can. And he said, well, I can do that. That was the level of aspiration in terms of my occupation that I had when I signed up for four years. And then I ended up staying for 30 because I realized that having no clear direction and not being really trained in anything military was nothing. That was not a problem because the military is going to teach me 
everything I needed to know. And it's often said, for example, in flight school, where there's, at least when I went through, there was about a 30 to 40% attrition rate of people that got kicked out. Nobody got kicked out that was still trying because anybody is trainable in the military model. We have this convention that the working assumption, everybody's trainable, and that's why it's transformational. That's why it transformed my life. That's why my four-year hitch turned into 30, because every time I had the opportunity, I was getting trained to do something else, something cool. I was being pushed. And it wasn't just, okay, now you're going to learn how to do this. Now you're going to learn how to fly a helicopter. Now you're going to learn how to land it on the ship. Now you're going to go be a college professor. Now you're going to go fly a fixed-wing aircraft. Now you're going to go back and get a graduate degree on your own. Now you're going to go be a commanding officer. You're always being trained. Every one of those things had schools involved in it. The military model is, it's no shame to go to school. It's a privilege. It's a pleasure and you compete for it. You're expected to stay current and proficient and you're supposed to master everything that's thrown your way because American taxpayers are investing a lot of money in us and we owe them that. This is not optional. You're not allowed to go there and give a half-hearted effort. You're supposed to give it everything you got. And I like that. And it's contagious. I think that's a great convention and way to organize the people's thinking, as you'd mentioned before. I mean, if we can assume that with enough work, you can master pretty much anything and then protect that skill set that you learn. I mean, what if everybody thought like that? And not only in business, but even in their personal life. What if we had to requalify in our relationships, in our marriage? Yeah. How about it? How about if you had to go on a check ride as a boyfriend or a husband or a wife? <laughs> it's kind of a scary thought. You might sharpen up your game a little. When I worked in the corporate world, I worked in the I worked in a consulting firm, kind of a boutique consulting firm, and it was an at-will employment arrangement. And I was perfectly content with that. I never lost a moment's sleep over the fact that at any time my work was not satisfactory that I could be called into the office and had one of those conversations where the bus is going this way and you're not on it. Because I lived 30 years trying to be better every day at what I was doing. And I think that's just great energy to bring to anything, whether it's your personal life, your professional life, if you're starting your own business, it better starts now. You know, not to steal the watch commercial and Eli Manning's words, it does. That's another thing that we've always thought that in uniform. And any veteran will tell you that, you know, not everybody stays for 30 years, but no matter how long you stayed in uniform, it was a transformational experience. Well, thanks so much for your service, all 30 years of it. Thank you, taxpayers. I got more out of this country than I ever gave it. That I don't mean that to be cheesy or schmaltzy or sentimental. I feel like I was given one of the greatest privileges in the world. It's a great time to be an American. And it's a great time to be a woman. And I cashed in on both. It was a lottery ticket. Is there anything else that you wish civilians knew about leadership and service that you want to leave us with? Yes, I would. The latest numbers are something like 93% of Americans have not served in uniform, but their service as taxpayers. We have a system that allows us to have the sort of military that we have that has more lethality and dominates the spectrum greater than any military force in history. And we use it with such restraint because we have a system that works. And the system depends on the citizens, not the schmucks like me that are in uniform. Love you guys out there and veterans, girls and guys, but it's the citizens that make our military great. And we always work for them. And of the 22 million of us out there, 
we all have different stories. If you know one veteran, if you've heard one veteran story, you've heard one veteran story. So talk to all of them. Take what you see in movies with a grain of salt and go talk to your uncle who served in Vietnam or your grandpa who might have been in Korea or your next door neighbor, the kid down at Best Buy who just got back from a hitch in Afghanistan because the stories are compelling and there's so much to share that it can't be captured in one person's dialogue, no matter how articulate it is. It's still one person's story. So I hope the American people, number one, know how much we appreciate them. And I invite you to talk to all of us. You know, it's funny you should mention that real quick. One sort of pro tip that I've come across in the last uh, few years of doing The Art of Charm and running it is I recently went to a wedding and they left me at home with the bride's family and it was a few really, really older people and her parents and the parents left to go to the store or something. So I'm sitting there with like my suit with her grandfather who was, I don't know, 94 maybe or something. I mean, he was up there and they were like, just don't say anything. You can just, you know, screw on your phone for 45 minutes. He doesn't like anyone. Don't take it personally. He might yell at you or ignore you or whatever. And I was like, well, I see one of those hats that you get when you served on an aircraft carrier or a boat or something where it's like USS whatever. And it's just, uh-huh. you know what I'm talking about, right? Sure, sure. And you probably have something like that. I do. I asked him about it and he turned off the TV for probably the first time in two decades and he wouldn't stop talking. I didn't even realize he could talk as well as he could because he'd only grunted a few times in the last two days that I was there. I mean, he had a walker and a kind of a cane deal and we went into his room and he had all these pictures and he showed me how he met his wife and he told me how they met and he had pictures of him and his servicemen on these boats and in, I can't remember if it was, it was an Iwo Jima or something like that and he had stories galore and when, The family came back and saw us sitting at the table drinking tea and chatting. They were floored because he probably hadn't spoken that much in 20 years. So veterans want to talk about this stuff, at least some of the ones that I've come across. And the older ones, they can't wait to tell you because nobody's cared in 30 years. That is very true. And he ain't going to be around forever. Your ability to hear his story might be one of the few people that hears it if it's not captured somewhere. So God bless you for that and taking the time to listen to him. Very cool. I think those guys have really interesting stories. I mean, don't get me wrong, modern day vets as well. It's just that I think it's almost like too soon to hear about the horrors of Iraq and Afghanistan and things like that. But when you hear about World War II, it's we're sufficiently removed by generations where the only thing I know about Iwo Jima is the guys holding up the flag right on that famous statue. Yeah, I think you're 100% right because World War II, the entire country was at war. Post 9-11, that isn't how it's been. It's been much more clinical and surgical, but those stories, not just the old guys, but the old women too, are amazing, amazing stories. Well, thank you so much, Karen. This has been really excellent, inspiring, and, and very, very fun. Good, good, good. There's a lot in there, and I really like the way that she was able to weave the practicals of degriefing procedure versus technique talk. It's At first, when I saw that in our show prep, I was not excited about that particularly, but I definitely see how this is actually probably one of the most important concepts in the show. And of course, the old goats in the clouds, communication with superiors can come in handy for pretty much every business and everybody who has to communicate with people where egos get in the way, which is, as far as I know, every single human relationship ever. 
So I hope you all enjoyed that as much as I did. She is on Twitter, we're on Twitter, I'm at The Art of Charm, we'll have her linked in the show notes as well as other resources she's mentioned in the show as well as her website. Our advertisers, our sponsors are also at theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. I'd also like to encourage you to join our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. We've got a lot of practical exercises, drills. I'm doing regular video drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. And we'll email you our fundamentals toolbox. We've got nonverbal communication and body language, networking, persuasion, public speaking, a whole lot more. It's gonna make you a better connector, better at relationships, better at networking, all of the above. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. This episode was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. This is The Art of Charm. Go ahead and tell your friends because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.